0: This is episode 66 of the 99 Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and my guest tonight is making his second appearance on the podcast. He's the host of the Tough Call podcast and a contributor for HeavyHockey.com, Josh Bolton. Josh, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks, Eric. Geez, episode 66, Mario Lemieux.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I might have to have you back for 99 as well, right? <laughs> uh, and you know, it's always good to talk to another Gretzky fan again, and uh Man, it's an exciting time in oil country right now. We're uh, less than four weeks away from the start of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And uh, as a minor hockey coach yourself, playoffs must be getting close to wrapping up for you. So before we get into any Oilers talk here, just how did the season go for your kids teams?
1: We finally had our last tournament of the year last year. And it's always nice because it's the one that's uh, it's a major one in the March break week. Uh, it's in my hometown of Cole Harbour, called the Joe LaMontagne Tournament. It's one of my favorite tournaments as a as a kid to take part in, and uh, and it's nice to to go back as a coach and uh, relive some of those moments with my own son being able to take part. Uh, our team lost in the the league final by one goal on home ice. It was uh it was a game we were probably expected to win. We had a great season. I think we only lost three games all year. And unfortunately, that was one of them. So that's a it was a rough way to end it for them. But it it was a lot of fun to watch those kids develop. And uh, the, they have a Sydney Crosby shootout was one of the main highlights of the year. Uh, every team that enters that tournament on March break in Cole Harbour uh, picks three team, three players from their team to take part in in a giant uh, tournament wide shootout. And my son got to take part in that. He was one of the three chosen. We had the players oh, on our awesome. team boat. And uh, it was something that I got to do when I was a kid, and it was something that uh, my brother also got to do. So to see my son get that opportunity as well was uh, was pretty special.
0: No, that's really cool. And I think the last time you were on the show, did you mention that you grew up not too far from the house that Sidney Crosby grew up in, too, right?
1: Yeah, it was one street over from it.
0: Wow, that's that's incredible. he <laughs> live so close to one of the, the all-time greats. Um, and uh, you coach your daughter's team, too, right?
1: I'm an assistant coach with with her team. It's been uh, every with the way it works. I tend to try and alternate being head coach for one kid one year and the other the next just sort of works out that way. Uh, But my daughter played female hockey for the first time this year. So she was traveling quite a bit more because that's based out of a out of a town about an hour away from where we live. So (laughs) her home games were an hour away. So it was, uh, it was an interesting year like that. But to, to watch her play with the uh, other female players and uh, see her come out of her show a little bit, that was a lot of fun, too.
0: Nice. And what are the ages that they play in?
1: So they were both under 13 this year. My son was second year and my daughter's first year.
0: Okay, that's awesome. The so, old uh, Kiwi. <laughs> And uh, for your son's team, is this the furthest that you mentioned they made it to the final? Was this the furthest that he's ever gone in his hockey career in terms of a a playoff run?
1: They're pretty disappointed because they played in the championship game last year as well. They were not the favorites last year. They were kind of the upstart Cinderella team that that ended up just playing the games of their lives on playoff weekend just happened to be. So they made the final and uh, they lost 5-4 in overtime. And then yeah. this year, they lost 5-4 again. And it's a tough break. For some of the second-year players, That was, the irony was not lost on them. And then, of course, in their spring season last year, they also lost their last game in overtime the same way. So they, they've had a bit of a rough stretch in their hockey. But, uh, you know, the Maduroc is over, but spring season has started. My son's in spring hockey this year. My daughter's going to play a little bit of three-on-three this spring. And then we're going to cap it off with a trip to Vermont. In July that we did last well, so hockey season just seems to be continuing.
0: It it just extends every year, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. And you know, uh, there's so many hockey camps in the summer now. It really seems like for the kids that have the chance to be professionals and from a young age show that they have a an elite skill set, it almost has to be a year round sport for them, doesn't it?
1: It's it's one of those things as a development coach. Uh, myself. I'm the development coordinator for our modern hockey association. I teach the check-in clinics for Hockey Nova Scotia. Um, I'm on the ice a lot with with different levels. And the the way I see it, my son didn't have any interest in that sort of thing. Uh, He always, as soon as the hockey season was over, that was it. He didn't really want to be out in the garage doing any extra work. He just wanted to go to the rink and play his regular games and practices and be done with it. And of course, he he was okay as a player, and this year, for whatever reason, at the end of last year, he decided he wanted he wanted to play spring hockey he wanted to to do extra work in the garage and you know if if that's his prerogative, that's great. but the way I heard it from one of the scouts that uh that I listened to an interview of once he basically put it that if your kid needs to be the one driving you to the rink, you can't be driving them to the rink and uh, all of a sudden my son wants to be wants to drive me to the rink he wants to do these extra things and he really did develop and gain a lot of confidence this year so obviously the extra time and the work helped but I don't necessarily encourage it just for the sake of doing it because you also want your kid to want to be there and you don't want to burn them out and get them to lose that passion for the game in not forcing them he's he's developed his own love for the game and now he wants to do it all the time. And that's great. But if they don't want to, if you're only doing it for the sake of getting them to get better, they won't get better because they don't want to be.
0: No, that's a good point too. And you know, uh, Wayne Gretzky is a big proponent that uh, kids should play multiple sports, at least up until they get into high school. And if they have a sport that they're solely focused on, then they can concentrate on it. But, you know, he said that when he was a kid, When hockey season was done, he couldn't wait for baseball season to start because he loved baseball almost as much as he loved hockey. And he also didn't have the pressure um, to be the best because when he played hockey, there were so many expectations on him, whereas he could just go out and have fun playing baseball. Uh, Do you agree that kids should play uh, several different sports, at least until they reach an age where uh, it's getting more competitive and then they have to be solely focused on one?
1: A thousand percent, um, a, a thousand percent. I played multiple sports growing up. My my kids play multiple sports, and you know you got to let them pick their passion. And if if all the skills intertwine and, and the schedules are usually pretty intense, but you can choose not to. You don't have to sign up for everything that has the word elite on it. That's what I always say. If you see the word elite, if you want to run a hockey school, call it elite. People will sign up for it. It's, it's ridiculous how much people jump on that. Um, anything that they think will get their kids a step ahead. But really, your kids are going to develop when they develop. Uh, if, you, if you put them in other sports, they're going to develop the, the skills that are – they cross-reference. They carry over to other sports. And, uh, you know, eventually, if, if your kid is going to bloom, they will find a way to bloom in their own time. And that's the, the one thing I really feel about minor hockey is if you're identified as a kid – early on as a nine, 10 year old, that's one of the kids that always makes the team. Then generally it doesn't matter how you perform in the next three or four years. If you're, if you've been on the team, you kind of have that reputation. Um, But there's so many kids out there that, that are late bloomers. They have other interests and all of a sudden they just find their way in a sport. And I know we have a lot of kids often that are, uh, you know, baseball season's wrapping up or, or school soccer or things like that. And they, they're, they're a little late getting started in their hockey season and people in hockey have to realize that for some people, hockey is a second sport. We always look at it like all the other sports are secondary
0: because it's Canada and and hockey always has to be number one. And if they play baseball or basketball or soccer, that that's automatically the second sport.
1: (laughs) Right. So, so if they have like a provincial championship for their school soccer team and they're going to miss your, your preseason tournament, that that shouldn't kick them off a team or something like that. You know, that sport is equally that championship is every bit as important as your preseason hockey tournament. You have to we have to understand that hockey hockey is maybe our lives, but it's not everyone's life and we have to let people come and go the same way we want to be willing to let have other sports let our hockey players come and go. And I think ultimately we'll all get to the places we want to be that way.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and the thing about the age group that you're coaching now, uh, I think you'll see it or you might have already seen it this year, especially in the next couple of years, is the, the drastic difference in sizes between kids, too. So when you talk about late bloomers, like there are going to be some kids who are a foot taller or maybe even 50 pounds heavier than some other kids just because they've hit a growth spurt sooner than some of the other kids playing on their team.
1: Absolutely. There's been a couple of kids here that have been like really superstars growing up and you're just like they hit 14 or 15 and they haven't hit that growth spurt yet. And you're just just dying for them to grow so they can move on with their career. And it just doesn't happen for some of them. And uh, my son, I come from a fairly short family. And for whatever reason, he he's quite a bit taller than a lot of people his age now. He just I don't know what it was between like uh, last year and this year he's he's grown quite a bit, and uh everyone's taken notice of of his height and it's it's been helpful for him and it's made him feel stronger and you know quicker for some reason it has has a psychological advantage to it uh but you just you just don't expect some players to have that happen you're absolutely right players will will be they disappear for the summer and they play a different sport and they show up to the rink in the fall and you have to be willing to to judge them based on who they are now as opposed to what you thought they were at the end of the last season.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And, you know, I only played one year of contact hockey when I was in grade seven. So that would have been my first year of Pee Wee. And then they restructured the the divisions of Pee Wee, Bantam, um, and Midget. So I only played one year of, of Pee Wee, then I actually two years of phantom and then four years of midget actually just because of the different age uh, the ages for all the groups that they switched in the early 2000s but that one year that i played of contact hockey i was one of the tallest kids on the team but i was also one of the lightest kids on the team because i was very skinny so when you're a taller kid you know you might look like you're one of the bigger kids on the team but I could be knocked over by someone who was shorter than me just because they were heavier. So that's also another factor when you're talking about kids developing at different ages.
1: Yeah. I mean, my my son has also decided he's going to train. He's doing push-ups and things like he's trying to get stronger. He's put on a little bit of weight. Uh, My nephew, Oh my God. When we were uh, (laughs) Canada day, no matter how old they get, he played major band and he played the highest league you can play around here for under 15 as a rookie this year. Um, And I tell you, they get the slip and slide out on Canada day when we, when we get together as a family. And when he took his shirt off, uh, he was a a man as opposed to, you know, the boy he was the year before, he just was a, a monster. These, these muscles and just, he just, his shoulders were broad and all of a sudden, and, he was just a completely different human being. Um, and it certainly helped him in the hockey, especially getting well,
0: I mean, high-level contact. You can see that at, at, from a 15-year-old who's you know, just a, a regular minor hockey kid. And then you could have a guy like Ryan Nugent Hopkins, who, when he was drafted at 18 years old, was about 6 feet tall and 163 pounds. And, you know, there, like you said, there could be 15-year-olds that are even more developed than him. And he's a first overall pick in the NHL. <laughs> absolutely yeah um well anyway man that's great that uh, your kids had a, a fun winter of hockey and that your son was able to make it to the final so hopefully he'll cap it off with a championship next year um i i also want to say uh, congrats to you on your youtube channel reaching 2400 subscribers recently and i i saw that you've had 3 videos with over 10,000 views in the last 2 weeks including one with 20,000 views so it's great to see that your channel's popularity is continuing to rise. For anyone who hasn't checked out your videos before or listened to the episode we recorded back in November, can you just explain what you do on your YouTube channel?
1: Well, uh, it's nice to have this opportunity. So I kind of forgot I was talking to somebody about the uh, the recent AJ Greer cross-check to Mike Hoffman. And, uh, of course, in my video, what I do is I have my own system, my own disciplinary standard. Uh, I have a suspension scale and it's based on how I would run my own league. If I were to run one, it's not necessarily based on what I think the current NHL should do or what I think they will do at all. It's, it's based on what I would do if I was running my own league, the standards I would have and what I would prioritize for player safety, um, so I recommended a six game suspension for AJ Greer. And of course to some people they see a number like that and it just looks ridiculous. And, and I forget sometimes that people don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> like I'm getting a lot of new traffic and new followers and, uh, and some new dialogue, some people coming onto the, the channel that aren't really familiar with what I do. And they just see six games and they're like, what are you talking about? What are you trying to do here? And, uh, well, what I'm trying to do is is really get people to take a step back and and realize cross-checking to the face. Like, would hockey really be worse off if that didn't happen anymore? Like, like one game for that. Really, when you think about it. You could, you could lay a proper body check, and all you did was take a, a wrong angle of approach and hit someone in the head accidentally, and you get two games,
0: and you get one game. It or, happened to Connor McDavid four years ago he was suspended 2 games because there was a I'm almost I can't even remember who it was but it, I think it was against Anaheim and there was a player skating right towards him and he just instinctively put up his two hands to defend himself as he was preparing to take a hit and his two hands came up and caught the guy in the head and McDavid gets a 2 game suspension for it and I'm thinking this is a guy who wasn't he was just prepping to prepare himself to take a hit And it was just like a a last second instinct of getting his hands up. But because of that, he gets a two game suspension, a player with no history of dirty play. It just, you know, and then a a straight cross check to the face. You wonder how they only give one game for that when it was clearly there was a lot more like malice intent there. (laughs) It
1: blows my mind. I mean, the puck wasn't even dropped. It's not part of a hockey play. There's no there's nothing there that has to that has any bearing on the impact of the flow of play there. So I, I don't know why they wouldn't go harder on that. And I'm just trying to get people to think about that. Why do we even have contact? I mean, you, I always get shocked when you, when you think about what happens in a game, when you really take a step back and realize the purpose is to shoot a black disc into a net.
0: All and the th- purpose of hitting is to separate the opponent from the puck. Exactly. You're not hitting to take someone's head off. You're not hitting to injure the guy. You're hitting to get the puck back and transition to offense.
1: <laughs> exactly. And that's what people are having a hard time with these days is they see a hit and they're, some of them are even saying, well, it was within three seconds of when the puck was gone. Well, three seconds is a long time that's
0: for one, you. To two, to hit. <laughs> three. You know, that's a lot of time. Even <clears throat> when you're skating at full blast, that's, that's a lot of time to like, you know, change your course.
1: It's asinine. And I think the NHL actually only gives like 0.6 seconds, which is a weird, even weird reference number. So hockey USA in particular has, has taken on. And the IIHF has always had the idea that as soon as the puck's gone, you don't need to hit anymore. And I think the game is organically going that way. Cause when, when I played and when you played, it was, you have to finish your check at all costs. If you skate out, if you're a winger and you skate out to the D on your point in the defensive zone and you don't hit them, You've failed. But now people realize if you take those three or four extra strides, that's another three or four seconds where you've taken yourself out of the play. And the game just moves too fast now for you to recover. So it's not worth it to go out and finish that hit. So there's less hitting in the game, but it's more just I think from organic play. And now every time there is a hit, there's a giant scrum and the game stops anyway. Yeah. Well so it's 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 really just inviting problems the way it's done. I'd love to see more open ice hitting, and and I think I found a way to do that by making players just keep more focused on hockey. So my theme is put the hockey back in hitting because people are always saying, I want want hitting to come back to hockey. Well, I think if we put the hockey back in the hitting idea instead of just hitting for the sake of hitting, it would happen actually a lot more.
0: Oh, yeah, 100%. And I want to ask you about two videos specifically uh, that are Oilers-related on your channel. The first being uh, Jason Robertson throwing a knee out at Connor McDavid as he was trying to skate out of the zone with the puck, and the other being John Tavares chopping okay. Vincent Deharnay across the hand. If you can think back to those two videos, what did you recommend for suspensions for uh, those particular incidents?
1: Okay, starting with the Tavares um, I'm pretty sure I would have fined Deharnay the cross, it's funny because the cross checks themselves that people claim, well, I shouldn't say people, I should say Leafs fans specifically because everyone else realizes they weren't that bad. So I don't care. I'm going to call Leafs fans out. They uh, they felt the cross checking and all that was, was too much. But really, the first one was just a push. I, I, as a forward who hates the idea that rules change in front of the net and players can have free will. Even I would have looked at that going, oh, I'm glad he only decided to push me a little bit. That seems fair. Like, he's allowed to do that. Um, then there was a little bit more of an aggressive cross-check, but what I think did it was when he used his stick to push on the back of Tavares' leg, just above the skate, and try and kind of push his feet out from bottom. Like, it's it's basically a slew foot with a stick. And uh, I'm pretty sure that's what set Tavares off. That would have set me off, too. Uh, so I would have actually fined... Him Because I don't think the NHL does a good enough job of getting rid of dangerous trips. We just saw uh, Jacob Tickering go out because uh, Hedman skated by and kind of clipped his leg. Uh, It happens a lot. Players accidentally on purpose do tight turns and they take the back of players' legs out. It it happens all the time. And they always call smooth dangerous trips. Even blatant ones where you actually do physically kick the player's leg out and drive your elbow back into their stomach and throw them down. They always call them dangerous trips. They never call it a slew foot. They're so afraid to give a match penalty in this league and call a suspension what it is. So for me, I would have fined Harnay for that little poke. and But I would have suspended Tavares eight games, I believe. Because eight games. That was a violent cross-slash uh, targeted to the top of a glove of a player you can do some real Yeah, it was a
0: two-hand. And, you know, for for I'm not always the guy who's saying that you have to like stand, you know, stand up for yourself physically after uh something, but if Tavares is going to feel confident enough to chop a guy like De'Arnais who's significantly larger than him, then Ooh. I think that you almost have to answer the bell a little bit after that because that's vicious. I I wouldn't have been shocked if De'Arnais stepped out of the penalty box and I, I'm not saying just Completely drop the gloves and force him into a fight, but just kind of even give him a little shove and say like, hey, you know, if, if you're going to do something like that again, it's going to be trouble for you.
1: I'm the mildest player you can get. It takes a lot to rile me up, and I'm but like that
0: was vicious. I'm missing like, things.
1: but if he'd have done that to me, I would have let him know one way or another that that was not okay. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Um, and and the league has to step in
1: here and and do something about that.
0: Because um, if you're just going to let a superstar player like Tavares viciously slash a seventh defenseman, you know, and and what's the what's the defenseman? I mean, if DeHarnay would have jumped him, let's say, of course, there would be two or three Leafs guys jumping in to pull him off of, of Tavares. So he, you just know that's going to happen. That would be for any star player. Uh, and it wouldn't have been a fair fight either. But just I, I think that in the heat of the moment. It, it probably escalated. And I do appreciate that Tavares did text day, or day after and apologize, but they, you know, it was still a, it was still a pretty, a pretty vicious chop by him. So, um, uh, I agree with you that there should have been at least some suspension instead of just a, a $5,000 fine, which is nothing. I mean, that, that doesn't, it, it's not like a lesson learned for Tavares who makes $11 million a year.
1: Well, and this is one of those ones where it's kind of a good introduction to my system because someone will tune in, hear eight games, and turn the dial off because they're like, this guy's out to lunch, eight games for a slash. But in my NHL or my league, it would be based on a standard, already a precedent set where slashing gets called consistently, even minor ones. So then when you have one like this, that would be an automatic major in my league. Like people wouldn't even doubt that that would be a major it wouldn't be like a shock like it would be today they'd already know that's the standard and then for me fines like Tavares was fine what does that do like you said these little piddly fines until the NHLPA gets their act together and allows the league to to negotiate real punishments this is partly on them they protect the violence they protect the offenders more than they protect the injured players
0: they should be protecting their stars especially, and. You look at the you look at the way that other sports like the NBA and NFL protect the star players in those leagues. Meanwhile, you you can have a player like Connor McDavid, who the other team is allowed to get away with consistent penalty after penalty. Uh, just I won't even call them missed calls, ignored calls, and it's like this is the best player in the league. This is your marquee player, and you're allowing bottom six forwards and third pairing defensemen to commit infractions on him unpunished it just it makes no sense when he's supposed to be the face of the league
1: it, it's crazy and Sidney Crosby was the same way I always get people commenting on my channel oh if that had been Sidney Crosby it would have been an eight game suspension the cry baby only one player in league history has ever been suspended for an infraction against Sidney Crosby and it was for one game for a cross check yeah. to the head that's it
0: And just look at how LeBron James has been protected in the NBA, and Tom Brady in the NFL. Can you imagine if McDavid had the same luxury, where anything close to a penalty was called, the Oilers would be on the power play half the game.
1: (laughs) And that's what people argue. What if they called all those little things, then the team would be in the
0: the just call the rule book.
1: Well, well, so what?
0: If if stop committing, stop committing penalties.
1: Be better. That's that's exactly. Be Be better.
0: And I think that they will I think some of the refs were like, "Oh well, they'll never come out and admit this, but you know, we we have to let them get away with something to even the, even it up a little bit." It's like, well, why do you have to even it up? Uh, you have one of the all time greats in his prime, and we're trying to even it up to make the playing field a little more fair. It just it's it's ridiculous.
1: Yeah, it makes it makes no sense. Let skill win. This league does not want skill to win. They want parity, and they go out of their way to get it and they promote violence, and we'll see it in the playoffs. The rule book will be completely different, as it always is. A skilled team will get ahead in a series. The other team will try and bully their way back in, and they'll be allowed to do it.
0: It's the only sport that has, at least for the North American, four major sports, it's the only sport that has a different rulebook for its playoffs. I mean, it's not like the strike zone is smaller or expanded in the playoffs. Ooh, that's a good in, in, in the baseball playoffs. Right. I mean, yeah. it's like, do we make do we make, a, do we make a, this certain concessions for football or basketball as well? I mean, I, I don't think so. A foul is still a foul in the NBA playoffs. So why is it just going back to the fact that they want hockey to be this really tough sport that it was in the 1970s? And you have to grind and battle for every inch out there.
1: Here's what I don't I remember watching an Oilers Jets game earlier this year. The Oilers were up five nothing, I think, and Logan Stanley took a giant run at Derek Ryan, checked him from behind, and there was a scrum in front of the net and all that. And and the announcers were basically just blatantly like calm and going, and this is what you expect in a five nothing game.
0: I was at that game.
1: Well, okay, there you go. <laughs> Could you imagine in let's just say a football game, forty two to seven, and it's early in the fourth quarter. Well, uh, I'll just start to take runs at the wide receivers then because that's what you do, and a will blow like, No weather sport would allow that.
0: No. I, like, I think it was, it was 6-1 at the time in the third period, and it was oh. a dangerous hit. And my friend who I was at the game with is a Jets fan. We were actually there for the heavy hockey showdown that weekend, our charity hockey game. Right. Uh, where we were raising money for the sexual assault center of Edmonton. And the day before the game, we all went to the Oilers-Jets game that night. And like I said, my buddy who had uh, come to the game with me is a Jets fan. And even he said that that was a dangerous hit by Logan Stanley. And he didn't know how uh, there wasn't a a major call there. And it's just like, it's a blowout game. The refs just want this one to be over with. You know, they they don't want to have to call anything. Let's just keep the clock running. And here Stanley comes with a dangerous hit at a, a point in the game when the Jets are already out of it. It just made no sense.
1: And I, I can't remember what I would have given, but I would have suspended him for that hit. Like, I just, I don't see why we would let that slide.
0: I mean, thankfully, he, uh, Derek wasn't injured there either. But, um, I mean, still, you're, what was he, 10 feet from the boards? And he just throws him in at an odd angle where, like you said, he goes shoulder first. It, it could have been, it could have ended a lot worse than it did.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was a terrible angle of approach. It was, he didn't slow up at all. He was going to hit no matter where that puck went. He just wanted to hit someone, and the second it happened, it's like he he wanted to throw a hit and get in a fight and do something because he instantly dropped his gloves and looked around to see who was coming.
0: Yeah, but that's the game that Stanley plays, too, and probably one of the only ways he can be effective out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. well, anyway, man, it's awesome that you're up to 2,400, and I'm sure you're going to hit 2,500 anytime soon here, too. So congrats on the growth of the channel.
1: Thank you very much. It's a lot of fun, and I get into a lot of good dialogue.
0: Oh, I I completely uh, would expect that. All right, let's get into some Oilers talk now. And like many episodes this winter, we have to start by talking about Connor McDavid, who scored his league-leading 60th goal of the season on Wednesday night as the Edmonton Oilers defeated the Arizona Coyotes 4-3 in the extra frame to extend their winning streak to five games. And McDavid didn't make Oilers fans wait long for him to add another notch to his already sublime season. He tallied his 59th goal of the season on the power play in the first period, where he banked the puck off the goalie's name bar and into the net from below the goal line. Then McDavid had back-to-back breakaways in overtime, thanks to two brilliant passes from Leon Draisaitl. And after hitting the post on his first attempt, McDavid went back to the same move again, outweighting Connor Ingram and this time he placed the puck right under the crossbar to reach the 60 goal plateau in dramatic fashion. Josh, I don't think anyone could have scripted a better way for McDavid to score his 60th, could they?
1: Well, for some reason, uh these superstars, they just seem to have Hollywood in the veins. It just it just seems to happen. If like it's kind of like Wayne Gretzky plugging away and going, you know what I'm going to break the point if all things considered, it looks like I'm gonna break the, the point record against the uh the Oilers in Edmonton. And of course it happened, right? Like that just it wouldn't happen against any other team. These 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 superstars just seem to be able to write a script. And this was just another example of that. Just a a, a awesome way to do it, an overtime winner and and just to have the place erupt like that, it was just really. And of course, the, the number of games, too, was kind of important when you compared to the race with us and Matthews to 60. That was kind of cool for him to get that as well. So
0: um, nice to have that one over him. <laughs> it is for sure. But, but
1: guy, like we brought Tom Brady up earlier. There's a guy who, who won a bunch of Super Bowls and then he he switches teams and then he just Calls his buddies and say, Hey, do you do you want to come to Tampa and win the Super Bowl with me? Sure, let's go do that. And they did. And so here's Conor McDavid just kind of chilling over a campfire in the summer, and he's just hanging out. And they're talking, going, You know, you could be a a 50 goal scorer. And he's like, Yeah, I probably could. Why not? Let's just do that this year. And then he just gets 60 for no reason. Like just, <laughs> hey, you know what? I feel like I feel like I can do it. Let's just do it to say I did it. And here we go. And and of course he can just do it.
0: I mean yeah I always sort of thought that McDavid had another step to take as a goal scorer. I didn't think that he would reach this level um as a sniper to be, you know, at 60 goals through 72 games, but uh definitely just like you said with Gretzky, McDavid has a flair for the dramatic yeah. and uh, going into overtime I just got a sense that this game wasn't going to end without McDavid scoring a 60th. And I love that he had the confidence to go back to the exact same move on a second breakaway because he was so frustrated. He didn't score the first time. And also I don't think Ingram was expecting him to try the same shot again. So it probably caught him off guard a little bit. So McDavid became the fastest player to score 60 goals in a single season since Mario Lemieux in 1995, 96. He also became the first oiler to score 60 goals since Wayne Gretzky, had 62 in 1986-87, which was a full decade before McDavid was even born. And the overtime winner was McDavid's 299th career NHL goal, passing Dreisaitl for fifth on the Oilers' all-time goals list. And he could get his 300th tonight. So all in all, it had to be one of the most memorable nights of McDavid's eight-year NHL career. And with 10 games to play, McDavid has a real shot to score 70 this season. No one has scored 70 goals in one season since Alexander McGilney and Timu Solani in 1992-93, 30 years ago. Josh, do you think McDavid will score 10 goals in the final 10 games to reach the 70-goal mark?
1: I think he will. Um, I, I really do. And the, what's amazing to me is he is doing this while still earning his second highest assist per game average for over the course of a season. Like he he's not sacrificing passes or points to do it. He's just shooting the, he's just being more selective about when to shoot the buck being more aggressive. I think uh, actually quietly Nugent Hopkins has kind of done the same thing. He, he's shooting more. And I think it's just, it's creating more and to bring it back to kind of minor hockey. Uh, my son scored a lot more goals this year than he ever did. He was always a passer. And it kind of reminds me, like doesn't remind me of Conor McDavid watching him, but the process of his career, he's kind of just decided, you know what? I want to score more this year. And he's deciding to not pass it sometimes. And what it's done is it's created more opportunity because now a goalie can't commit either way. So it actually almost uh, makes it easier to score. If you're a shooter and you start to pass more, you're st- they're still kind of committed to you shooting. But where he's always been a passer first and looking people off, uh, when you start to add a shot element, I think that's a little more surprising than if you start with shoot first and then add pass later. Uh, so it's it's been nice to see uh, the way he's created the goals. Like there's certain people that are just known goal scorers and they have the, like the, you see them get the same kind of goal over and over again or they don't have the puck on their stick that long because they're the trigger man you know what i mean whereas Connor mcdavid as always because of his elite speed and his skill set he's he's scoring goals of the type that we don't see and he's been able to do it consistently like it's not a one-off highlight reel just because they're a skilled player and they happen to to do something one game that looked really cool he's just always pushing the boundary of how can i find ways to put this puck into the net and the way he creates his chances because he wasn't always a shooter now you never know is he going to go to the net is he going to dish it off and just he has so many different ways to get to the net that it's it's really hard to stop him obviously so I think he he will get 70 because of the fact that you don't just have to walk into him on one spot in the power play or you don't just have to streak he doesn't streak down one wing all the time he's just all over the map you never know where that shot's going to come from
0: Yeah, definitely. And uh, McDavid has always been known as a playmaker first and foremost. However, this season, he's really developed a shooter's instinct and he's increased his goal totals exponentially and not just for his own personal gain either, but because he wants the Oilers to win. He's a team first guy and that's the only reason that he cares about scoring more goals is because he's helping his team. And we saw it right from the first game of the season where he scored a hat-trick. And then he had from there, he had 30 goals before Christmas and he had 40 goals before the All-Star break and he had 50 goals before March. And now he's within striking distance of 70 goals as we head into the final few weeks of the regular season. I mean, we already know he's going to win the Rocket Richard Trophy. McDavid scored 60 goals before anyone else in the league hit 50. And there's a few reasons that I think he'll score 70 this year. First off, he's on an absolute goal-scoring tear right now with 18 goals in his last 15 games. So I don't see him slowing down right before the playoffs. If anything, he's going to elevate his game even more down the stretch. Secondly, you just know Dreisaitl is going to be looking to set him up at every chance he gets to help him hit 70. And lastly, the Oilers have a fairly light schedule the rest of the way. They play Arizona, Anaheim, and San Jose twice each so he could easily put up five or six goals in those three games and and if he can get a hat trick at some point which incredibly he hasn't done since october then it becomes even more likely that he scores 70
1: oh yeah yeah definitely he's been fairly consistent and he's on a tear and historically he racks he just gets on heaters at the end of the year historically that's been happening So why would this be any different? And so if he's going to get, you know, X amount of points over the last bit of the season, like he always does. Who's to say that half those won't be goals this year instead of the majority being assists like they have been in previous years, based on the way his his year has been going. He's going to get the points in one form or another. So why wouldn't they be goals?
0: Right. And it's like you said, his assists haven't dropped off at all. He's two assists away from setting a new career high in assists meanwhile he's like we said already at 60 goals and pushing for 70 it's just it's remarkable what this guy has done this year and he he already became the fifth player in nhl history to score five straight multi-goal games and it's just you almost like during that run you were almost expecting him to score at least one or two every night because he was on just such a heater and It's not just like he's shooting more either, but the shots are just, he's picking his spots and he's, he's always had a very accurate shot too, but it seems like he's added some velocity to his shot this year. And he does this, this great move where he likes to either cut to the middle and then to the outside and go five hole, or he'll shoot through traffic. We're just seeing uh, him scoring it a, a lot of different ways than before, where he would just take the puck end to end, make a hard cut to the middle of the ice and, Uh, dangle the goalie it's just it's not these these thrilling rushes up the ice anymore well i mean he still does score that way but that that's not the way he's scoring the bulk of his goals he has become one of the premier shooters in the league
1: yeah he just finds ways to get the puck to the net from impossible scenarios and it's just hard as a goalie you never know when that's coming his his release he holds the puck in, in the constant position so you don't it's not like he pulls back and then the goalie can get set because he knows the shot's coming it's just on his stick and then all of a sudden it's not on his stick anymore and it's in the back of the net before you can even react
0: and i believe that goal that he scored to hit 60 was at 2 30 a.m atlantic time so i'm, I'm guessing you didn't uh, get to celebrate until the next morning for that one
1: i feel like i watched that the next morning um <laughs> That was yeah, that was. But it's still every bit as exciting because I don't know the result. I wake up and it's like, for all I know, I need to go through my all my superstitions because I can still affect the outcome of the game because it hasn't
0: happened. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I I like that you uh, don't check your phone and that you watch it as if it's live. You know, I worked a lot of evening shifts uh during the decade of darkness so i would come home and watch uh games after work and uh usually it was a, a pretty depressing way to end the night because those games ended with a loss a lot more often than they did a win but <laughs> yeah but at least uh at least now that uh i have a lot more evenings off uh, the oilers are a better team so that's uh, makes it a lot more fun <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. but um I-, I will ask you this though if it does get to a point where the Oilers are in the Stanley Cup Final, which could happen this June, will you stay up and watch those games live?
1: I feel like I, I feel like I would have to um,
0: sacrifice a couple hours of sleep because you just have to see it as it's happening, right?
1: As, as a kid, there was nothing better. You, know, you just wanted the overtimes to last forever to say you were up till three watching it. Like you watched the the May Day goal and. I watched the, the the other Buffalo goal where it was Dave Hannon, Dave <laughs> Hannon. Like I watched all that, the the Caps, uh, Islanders. I remember these moments as a kid, staying up and watching these games. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, uh, of course, also then you didn't have the option of watching it the next day, really. Like our, our yeah, life. You didn't have
0: a PVR at that time, right?
1: So I have a lot of you know VHS games and all that, but that's a lot of work. <laughs> You put your time in. I have I still have these VHS tapes of old games and World Cups and stuff. And you know, you just it's it's a lot of time and work, these mixed tapes that we used to make, people don't realize mm-hmm. what put into them.
0: Hey so. man, we're kids of the nineties, right? <laughs> like we we were the last generation of uh of VHS tapes and going to video stores, so uh, I'm glad that uh, we got to experience that before <laughs> before uh, the the invention of uh, the internet and the, uh, the rapid growth of uh, streaming services. I, th-
1: I think the other part of it is it would be just too important. I wouldn't want to risk having the score ruined for me before I actually got to sit down and watch it. So I would want to experience that real time.
0: Yeah, I mean, like I said, if the Oilers were at three wins and they were going into a game where they could win the stanley cup tonight just as one oilers fan to another i would want you to be able to to see that live and and to witness that moment
1: oh yeah absolutely and i I would definitely want to see it i remember
0: oh sorry go ahead go ahead
1: when cindy Crosby won the cup the first time i remember sitting on the couch with my wife this was pre-kids and we were in our old house and we were, we just watched the game together. And when, it, when, it, when Crosby won the cup, we kind of were like both, we did it like, as if we had something, you know, it was like we finally accomplished it together. Like, right. So that I, that would absolutely be how I would feel if, if the Oilers won the cup, it would be something that I would be part of for sure. And I would want to be there in the moment
0: to, to live that oh absolutely i mean i was alive for one oilers cup but i was a year and a half old when it happened so i even though i can say i was around for one i uh, couldn't really appreciate it at that age so i would like to be able to uh to see an Oilers stanley cup when uh when i'm old enough to uh to be a fan and and know what's going on so i mean that would be just a uh, Uh, A dream, that's my ultimate sports uh, dream, is to to see the Edmonton Oilers win a Stanley Cup in in my lifetime. And they've never been closer to making that happen than they are right now, Uh, you know, save for maybe 2006 where they were one game away. But um, just going back to McDavid now, even if he falls short of 70, I want to see him at least get to 66 goals because then he would pass Alex Ovechkin for the most single season goals in the salary cap era. He's already surpassed Nikita Kucherov for the most single-season points in the salary cap era earlier this month, and it would be great to see him beat Ovechkin's goal-scoring mark. And just to finish up on McDavid, he's 26 now, and he's in his absolute prime. But do you think this will be his peak offensive season, or could we see McDavid raise the bar even higher next year?
1: I don't think this is his limit. I really don't. Uh, the way the game is going. Uh, we just saw Crosby have a point per game season for his 18th in a row or something like that,
0: wasn't it? Um, and He's one behind Wayne Gretzky for point per game seasons now. Like it's just unreal what he's been able to do. And McDavid
1: is is another. I think he's got another level on top of that. Like the way he, the way he generates chances. I don't think people always said, oh, he's so fast and you know we can't maintain that for his career but I, I i think he's adapted pretty darn well to to where he is right now like it, like we said he's finding different ways he's not relying on one skill set he he's he's just super creative enough that he'll find a way to make things happen especially like he's not even old yet like you said right it's, it's not like he's he's starting to deteriorate and no you know, he's,
0: he's he's inexplicably getting better and if you look at NHL uh, like top offensive players they usually peak somewhere between 23 and 27 but over mcdavid's career he's just continually gotten better year after year after year and he's he's not slowing down at all as he gets into his mid to late 20s we're seeing his offensive game take off even further to the point where now he's just 12 points away from 150 points. It's just, it's incredible. I mean, we're running out of superlatives to describe how great of a player and how great of a season he's having.
1: And we're back to an era where the Oilers are leading the league in goals again, goals
0: for, they're just, Back to the 80s. uh, They got the best player in the world. They got the best offensive team in the world. Now all they have to do is win the Cup.
1: Exactly. Right? (laughs) And it's funny because it's a lot like the 80s because we're also like the highest goals against per game average or total. Total goals against, uh, I think we're like 11th in the league or something like that. Uh, Easily the worst of all the playoff teams. Uh, Florida, I think, is tense. They're the only team that has a remote shot at the playoffs that has given up more goals against than us. But our goals four. It, it doesn't matter. It's like it's like the old Grant Fear days. As long as they can let in one less than the opponent, I think we got a shot in every game.
0: And we, we've heard a lot that the Oilers have enough elite skill that they can outscore their problems. But you want the team to still be better defensively as they get into the playoffs, where You know, they they still have the offensive ability to put up four or five, even six goals a night. But if you can keep the other team to two or less, you're going to win a lot of hockey games. And that's going to be the thing that will determine whether or not the Oilers go on a deep run or not.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I think I think they can turn that corner. I think once the playoffs start, uh, things will will bear down a little bit. And we'll have uh, one way or the other, we'll get a bonafide number one goalie that we're going to ride each time. And we won't see maybe some of these one-off high scoring
0: against games. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've always believed that McDavid would put up 150 points in a season eventually. However, I didn't envision a 70-goal season for him. I don't know if I thought any player would score 70 goals if Ovechkin couldn't do it but he's currently on pace for 68 goals and 157 points in 82 games. We've already talked about the significance of eclipsing 65 goals, but 157 points would be the most single season points in NHL history by a player other than Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux. And that's the stratosphere where McDavid now resides. He's already a top 10 player in the history of the game, in my opinion. But by the time his career is over... I believe he will widely be considered one of the three greatest forwards of all time alongside Gretzky and Lemieux. And as for this being his peak offensive season, I still think he can maintain this level for at least another two years. So I, I could see him getting 160 points next year, or possibly even 164 to make it a full two points per game.
1: I, I can't imagine a world where that doesn't happen, to be
0: honest. And just knowing the, I don't know how much Connor pays attention to the, you know, the all time greats that he's chasing or anything like that. But I, I think that if he got close to 160, if he was sitting at like 158, he'd say, well, yeah, you know, I, I'm going to make sure that I get there now.
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure. And, and when I compare him to some of the greats, that you you just don't realize wh- where you are in the timeline of hockey eras, I, I guess. When you when you look at what Crosby and Ovechkin were were able to do in their time, and when you think back to like the days of Steve Iserman and Dale Howardchuk and guys like that that were able. The reason I bring them up is because these are players, particularly of that era, that. Were finding different ways to get their points. Like you have Gary Curry, who was a great scorer, uh, but he, he was kind of just basing his goals off of feeds from Gretzky, right? He was kind of a trigger guy, and, and Gretzky was finding different ways to get his points. Dale Howarchuk and Steve Eiserman were kind of the creative guys, and you know, even the likes of Joe Sackick, who got a lot of points, he, he kind of had a familiar shot, and I'm not saying he wasn't creative, but there was just something super dynamic about the other guys. Uh, I'm not certainly taking anything away from from different players, but there's just certain one or two players of every era that stand out as as guys that are just finding different unique ways to play the game of hockey that are just impossible to defend. And I think you know we're we're seeing that in in Connor McDavid, and it just happens to be at a time where the the league you know with the rules there and all that they just haven't been able to figure him out and it is kind of funny like you said he he didn't used to draw a lot of penalties and i think maybe this year he's finally getting a little bit of the respect that way from officials maybe
0: yeah i'm not a big fan of that either where you know there's this thing called veteran calls where once you've been around long enough the refs respect you enough to call a penalty oh. and just i i think that's another thing that's a problem with the game but uh, I digress. It just—it's good that I guess McDavid has now reached a point at least where uh, the officials are giving him the benefit of the doubt more often than not. Even though by the time he was 21 years old, he'd already won two scoring titles. You think that would be enough to get the respect of the officials? But yeah. it would—that's <laughs> just that, me talking.
1: Oh, uh, for sure. I'm—I'm I'm right there. <laughs> There's no reason why a new player. Oh, and it's like welcome to the show, kid. No, why? Like what? Why? Welcome. Yeah. To- He's just a hockey player like anyone else. He deserves to be protected like anyone else.
0: For sure. All right, let's move on to Matthias Ekholm now. And since making his Oilers debut on March 1st, Ekholm has three goals, nine points, and a plus 15 rating in 11 games. But most importantly, the Oilers have a 9-2-0 record since Ekholm was acquired from the Nashville Predators prior to the trade deadline. Josh, what can you say about the impact that Ekholm has had on this team over the past month?
1: Well, it's it's kind of interesting to me. We talked in the group chat a little bit, and I'm I'm definitely a Ken Holland fan, more so than I'm not a fan. So I am, am I.
0: I, I think think, he, not to cut you off, but I think he takes a lot of flack for just people who don't like him. They they'll look at one or two moves that he did. And if they don't like the nurse contract or whatever it may be, and they've just made up their mind about the guy and it doesn't matter if he makes a good deal or a good signing or not. They just don't want to give him credit for anything.
1: Well, absolutely. And when, when you look at what people were saying last year were our problems, I don't believe those are problems anymore. And obviously, Ekholm is now a big part of that. And I I'm not a big fan of change for the sake of change, honest to God. But I do think that injecting that kind of freshness, that sort of beacon of hope, if you will, I suppose. Like, the, if we'd have got any player, it probably would have been enough to sort of satisfy the demons for at least a game or two until we saw how it played out. But I really, I really like the fact that he was the one we got because there's just a presence about him that. It's it's just soothing. My son is a Nashville fan, so I've watched him quite a bit before that. I never really thought about him as a as an option for us to get because I don't really pay much attention to contracts and how it would have to happen. But he's one of the guys that it's like, oh, yeah, he'd, he'd be awesome to have. If, if that's feasible, sure, why not? So he made it happen. And just, like I said, just a presence. To have that change and to have him with Bouchard I tell you what, you know, you talk about players that are affected by being traded. Uh, How much of an injection of life was the trade deadline for a player like him who wasn't traded? Because all of a sudden, the guy who's been kind of holding him back, as it were, the the player he's supposed to mold into is now gone, Tyson Berry. So all of a sudden, Bouchard is like, this is like a second coming for him. It's It's a chance, a new life. And uh, to have Ekholm be his his guide through that, uh, I don't think, you know, to get Ekholm as, as a player himself, but the impact he's had on the players around him is, is like a, a double-edged sword for the opposition. Because all of a sudden, they're playing better. He's making people around him better. And I think that's the most important
0: thing he's done so far. Oh yeah, uh, unquestionably. And and while Tyson Berry was a key member of one of the best power play units in NHL history, trading him in a package deal looks like one of the best moves that Ken Holland has made as general manager of the Edmonton Oilers. And just right from his first game, you could see what a difference maker Ekholm was on the back end. He can disrupt the opposition with his reach or use his large frame to knock them off the puck along the boards. He always seems to be in the right place at the right time in his own zone, and Despite being a team that thrives off the rush, the Oilers have needed to do a better job of transitioning the puck from defense to the forwards. But since Ekholm arrived at Edmonton, there's been noticeable improvement in this area. I think about the goal in Buffalo, where he made just such a, a simple, smart play to just get the puck up ice to, I believe it was Evander Kane, who then just made a little touch pass to McDavid, who skated in and scored a goal. And just to have that sure hand in the defensive zone and just always make the right choice with the puck, you know, never do anything flashy or risky, but just get the puck efficiently out of the zone. That's been a a huge help too. And he always looks calm in his puck retrievals. Um, and and like I said, he makes a great first pass and, and he's got a, a cannon for a slap shot too. I mean, just look at the goal that he scored to tie the game against San Jose the other night. He had all day to walk into that shot because there were two, uh, Sharks players who went right to McDavid, just leaving Ekholm wide open. And just two of his three goals so far, he's absolutely ripped a shot past a goaltender. He also brings a ton of experience to an Oilers team with several young, inexperienced defenders on it. I mean, he's played in 75 career playoff games and he helped the Predators reach the 2017 Stanley Cup final. So as far as uh, trade deadline acquisitions go, he has to be one of the most effective ones around the league.
1: Yeah, he just makes everybody relax. It's it's like they can turn to him for emotional support in a way. I, I, I'm obviously not in the room. I'm not on the bench. But you can just see that players are playing a little bit bigger, a little bit more patient around him. They're not as afraid to, to do things with the puck. Um, I do find that our Oilers defense traditionally at the start of this year, as soon as they hold on to the puck for more than three seconds, I know a turnover is about to happen. It's, it's kind of funny because they say about be patient, but there's how many times, and I hate to do this to, to Nurse, but Nurse has a tendency to stand behind the net and kind of wait for the play to set up. And then he takes a step out. And b- by the time you, you wait that long, it's like, OK, something big's got to happen or there was no point in me doing that. So he'll step out and he'll make this long pass to nobody and I find a few of our d were doing that the longer they hold on to the puck, the more I get nervous. <laughs> it's like a goaltender being out of their net and holding on to the puck, and I just don't quite know where to put it, except it's our defense that do that. You shouldn't feel that way and ever since Eckholm's been been there there's there's just been a a quiet precision to those first passes, like you said it's it's not flashy. But it's not delayed. It's just intentionally intentionally efficient, I guess is the right word to put it. And I think it's made a, a lot of difference in the way the other defense, like I said, have reacted and they're trying to do the same things. It's just it's just been calming and soothing and it's a lot less chaotic as a fan to watch.
0: And everyone's slotted accordingly now. Like because Ekholm's arrived, it's taken almost a minute of ice time away from Nurse a game, which allows him to stay fresher for the third period. You're able to move Brett Kulak down to the third pairing. Um, you can cut back Philip Broberg's minutes a little bit. And while I still think that Broberg is going to be an important player for this team going forward, he's still very young, and on a, a team that's trying to win a Stanley Cup this year, if you can have him as a number seven guy as opposed to someone who has to be in the top six every night. I, I think that that probably helps this team too. And and when he does get a chance to play, uh, you know that uh, he can still bring it because we've seen him grow over the, the last couple months as well. Um, and I just think that that pairing with Bouchard and Ekholm, I mean, that's easily the Oilers best puck moving uh, pairing on the back end. Now the, You've got Ekholm, who we've already talked about, who can make the the smart, simple pass. But then you've got Bouchard, who can deliver those long stretch passes that are right on the tape to send a guy in on a breakaway. He's done it for McDavid a couple times this year, and I hope that it's going to become a more regular thing in the years to come. Uh, So I just want to go back to them for a second. You mentioned the positive impact that uh, Ekholm's had on Bouchard. Did you expect that those two would play together and that it would really help Bouchard rediscover his form from last season?
1: I wasn't sure if, if they were going to play together, but I, I feel like, um, like I said, Bouchard was almost thrust into a spotlight with the, the departure of Barry. It was all of a sudden his his chance to kind of put up or shut up. You know what I mean? It's like his his time to be the guy a little bit. And it has... Obviously happened on the power play, and uh, I I feel like he was ready for some sort of confidence boost anyway. So the fact that he was put with with Ekholm, I I I don't know if that was the plan all along when they got him or what, but I think it's been it's one been one of the best things for him because he's uh you know I, he was already under the gun a little bit to start taking stepping into that role. And I think he was probably pretty excited about that chance, but it would have been a little different if he'd been paired with somebody like say Cody CC or something, it would have been a lot more pressure to carry things. Whereas that column I think has allowed him to transition without that worry of, you know, things are going to be okay. Cause I got a there.
0: Yeah. And, and so look after Bouchard had 43 points as an unofficial rookie in 2021-22, I thought he was a lock to put up 50 points this season and possibly even 60. But he struggled at both ends of the ice for much of this season. And I think a big reason for that was because he missed playing with a future Hall of Famer like Duncan Keith. But since Ekholm arrived, Bouchard has nine points in 11 games, which is you know close to a point per game pace and that's even more than we expect from him as an offensive defenseman but he's also only been on the ice for two even strength goals against during that span which is quite impressive considering the tough competition the oilers have played this month the thing is though when it comes to barry yes he was a very popular player in the room yes he was an important part of the player uh, power play but the oilers made the right choice going with the younger player with the higher upside, also a player that the organization drafted and developed themselves. And with Barry uh, headed to Nashville, that was the opportunity for Bouchard to finally step in and become the full-time power play quarterback, which is the role he was expected to fulfill when the Oilers drafted him 5 years ago. So Ekholm's arrival has both directly and indirectly put Bouchard in a better position to succeed, in my opinion.
1: Exactly. It's it's allowed him to transition into a higher role without the pressure of being the one that has to carry the shift when he's out there, because he's got uh, a strong backer. I think you're right about the Duncan Keats situation. And when I talked about goals against for the Oilers, um, they actually, in the 11 games since eckholm has been there, have have actually given up slightly above their their average goals per game. I think their average goals per game is just over three against. And since that has been here, I think it's like 3.45 or something like that. But they've also held the opposition to two goals or less, four times of those 11 and three of those are against the Leafs, the Bruins and the Dallas stars. So some tough
0: competition there. Um, There's been seen that from this team all year where they get up to play the best teams in the league. One of their issues has been playing down to their competition. We've seen them also lose to some bottom five teams in the league. Uh, So if they can sort of get that sorted out and take care of the games that they're supposed to win, then this team will be set up. But as we get going into the playoffs, at least it's encouraging that we know that the Oilers can beat the good teams in this league.
1: Well, people, you know, it, it almost looks, it's almost a positive for us because we're going to be playing. I, I don't care what people want to say about the Eastern Conference. We've talked a lot in our little group about how tough the Pacific Division is because all the teams are so close and none of them will stop winning. So, so it's been really hard. The Oilers have... As great as they've been, have had a hard time making up points in the standings because the other teams just refuse to
0: lose. Absolutely, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to gain points when you look at the out of town scoreboard and <laughs> oh, you won tonight, but the team you're t- chasing also won, and it just happens night after night after night. So it just feels like all you're doing is keeping pace, really.
1: Exactly, um, and I th- and the Pacific Division, the points are so close to each other that it's it's nice to know that the Oilers are able to find a way to get on top of teams that are, that are close to them or above them, even if they kind of stumble a little bit against a lesser competition, because we know that as long as they can keep pace with whoever they're playing with on any given night, that's all that matters, right? It's not, it's not like they're getting blown away by the lower seats. They're still beating them. It just happens to be one goal games. Uh, so we can, we can, Win one goal games all the way to the Stanley Cup. It doesn't matter how you do it as long as you do it.
0: Definitely. All right, let's talk about Stuart Skinner now. Skinner recorded his 29th career win. In a 6-4 victory over the Seattle Kraken last Saturday, breaking Grant Fears franchise record for the most wins by a rookie goalie, Skinner was also the first Oilers rookie goalie to be named to the NHL All-Star Game since Fear in 1981-82 earlier this year. And while Skinner started the season as the backup, he's undoubtedly the Oilers' number one goalie now and will be in net for game one of the playoffs. Josh, many Oilers fans viewed Skinner as the goalie of the future for this team. But after signing Jack Campbell to a five-year contract in the offseason, are you surprised that Skinner has taken the crease from him this soon?
1: I'm not surprised because of Stuart Skinner's capabilities. I'm surprised that Jack Campbell hasn't found his game quite yet. That's what I'm more surprised about. But as far as Stuart Skinner goes... I'm I'm not really surprised that he's been able to to jump into this scenario. I think it would have been a little different had we not signed Jack Campbell and gone with Stuart Skinner, and he all of a sudden was supposed to be the guy. I think again, it's it's another situation like we just talked about with Bouchard, where because he hasn't been able, uh, been required to be the guy, it just happens to work out that he has. He's been obviously uh, a a tremendous relief for our, for us as Campbell's had his struggles. But I think if, if we had depended on that right from the get-go, that pro- that might've been a different story. I don't know. I can't say one way or the other, um, but I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised he was able to, to pull things together when we needed it and put together this kind of a year because he, he definitely is going to be the goalie of the future. We just didn't know, at what point, how far into the future we'd need to go before he got there.
0: Right. And another thing that some Oilers fans uh, like to criticize Ken Holland for is for making that uh, five-year pact with Campbell. But look, this was a team that was looking for stability in net. Mike Smith was going on LTI for for the year, so he wasn't going to play. Koskinen had signed in Europe. So the Oilers were going to have to upgrade the goaltending position no matter what. They saw, I think, enough from Skinner last season that they felt comfortable that he could be the backup this year. But for a team that was trying to win a Stanley Cup, you couldn't go into the season with a guy that's played 14 NHL games and bank on him to be the starter. So Holland had to address the goaltending in the summer. You could say that maybe he only needed to sign a goalie for three years, and maybe they could have tried to find someone else's more of a short-term option instead of uh, giving Campbell a five-year deal. But he was the best goalie on the market. He and Darcy Kemper and Washington grabbed Kemper first. So the, Campbell was basically the guy that was was out there, the, the number one goalie on the free agent market. And the Oilers grabbed him for $5 million a year. And I thought maybe he would hold that position for three years, and then we would see uh, Skinner by that point sort of ascend up and, and take the starter's job and you'd have Campbell as the the backup for the final two years of the deal. But the fact that it's happened this soon, and that's not to say that they couldn't go back next year. Like if Campbell has a resurgence in a second year in Edmonton, which I, I hope he does. I hope he does find his game. Uh, it's too late for him to, to get his game on track. Now he's all he's doing for the rest of this season is giving Skinner rest when Skinner needs it. But I do hope that he rebounds next year, but uh, for Skinner to, Show this early on that he is capable of being an NHL goaltender. I mean, he when he started the season he was 23. He's turned 24 since, but that just gives me a lot of hope for the future. And also, Skinner signed a, a three-year extension in December for 2.6 million per year. So when you look at them as a, a collective, that they're going to make 7.6 million uh, as a tandem for the next three years, you can live with that as as a, a total price point for your two goalies. You know, you could argue that it should be maybe flipped that one guy is making 5 million and the other guy is making 2.6, but the fact that that's the total cost for your goalies, I think it's a lot easier to stomach.
1: Having Jack Campbell for 5 years is not a big problem in my opinion. You you might like you said scoff at the numbers a little bit, but when you do what you just did and and say that's your goalie total, that's that's in line with what you'd want as far as the percentage of your cap for your goalies. And like you said, Jack Campbell, it's not like like he's dead to us, you know?
0: (laughs) And if the Oilers win the Stanley Cup this year, nothing else matters, right? Like some some people talk about, oh, the Zach Hyman contract could age badly. Or even before this season, when Nugent Hopkins is having a career year, some people thought that that contract would age badly uh, as he gets into his mid to late 30s. But realistically, the Oilers don't care about what those contracts are going to look like in, in year six and year seven. And the salary cap will have gone up by then anyway, so it, it, it's not going to be as big of a hit as as uh, some may think. But they care about the next two to three years when they're in this window with McDavid and Dreisaitl at the height of their powers. And if you had to sign some guys a year or two longer than you probably would have liked to, to surround McDavid and dry settle with as much talent as you can right now, then it's well worth it. That's the most important thing for this. And when you look at how important Skinner has been to the Oilers this season, it's hard to imagine where they would be without him. And other than just one good month in January, it's been a really tough first year in Edmonton for Jack Campbell, right from opening night. But Skinner stole the starter's job early on and never looked back. I think he's also inspired a lot of confidence in this group where they can go out and play to their capabilities and feel confident that Skinner is going to make the next save. Um, I'd also say that other than McDavid and Drysidel, Skinner has probably been this team's most valuable player this season. Josh, looking at some of the candidates for the Calder Trophy, Do you think that Skinner has a realistic chance to be a candidate for Rookie of the Year?
1: Honestly, it's the way they define these trophies. You know, is it who had the best season statistically? Is it what kind of rookie is the MVP of their team? If you're looking at importance to their team and being thrust into a role of significant importance compared to maybe other rookies. There's Stuart Skinner has to be up there among the very top in terms of importance and relevance to where their teams are this season. So I don't know statistically how he ranks up against other goaltenders or, you know, comparatively other rookies, what kind of years they're having. Uh, all I can say from, from a standpoint of an Oilers fan is, like you said, we wouldn't be where we are without them. Without him, and, right? And about the importance of his role on this team, I don't think there's any rookie that's that's stepped into a more important
0: role. And he doesn't have a, a player like uh, a Connor McDavid or a uh, Austin Matthews standing in front of him who could take the Calder Trophy. I mean, Matty Baneers leads all rookies in scoring with 50 points. Mason McTavish has 41. Uh, Matias Michelli for Arizona, surprisingly, has, who's come out of nowhere, it seems, has 40. Those are the top three scoring rookies in the league. And it's not like they're having world beater season. So Skinner should definitely be in the mix with them, at least. The only other rookie goalie who would be right up there with him would be Logan Thompson in Vegas, who's injured now. But I just think when you when you see how important Skinner has been to this Oilers team and the fact that we're talking about him, I, I mean, you could argue that any team's goaltender is one of their most valuable players. But when you look at how important he's been to the Oilers' success this year, I don't know how he's not at least a, a final three candidate for the, the Calder.
1: He has to be recognized in some way. I, I mean, when you look at uh, Neil getting a statue in Ottawa, Uh, there's there's different ways to measure the importance to a franchise and the value you bring to a team that's for sure right if you're going to look at it that way i like i said i don't know if there's any rookie that's been more important to their team in 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 terms of the role they play in their rookie season than stewart skinner yeah i
0: I absolutely agree and i just want to talk to about the standings to finish up here so As of right now, the Oilers are in third in the Pacific Division with 90 points, four points back of L.A., six points back of Vegas. They also play both of those teams two times each before the end of the season, one in Edmonton and one on the road. So the Oilers do control their own fate to a certain extent. Looking at it with 10 games to go, where do you think the Oilers will finish in the Pacific Division?
1: I think they're going to finish second, same as last year. Um, They've they've done all they can to to gain ground. It's all they can do to get themselves jumped out of that last wildcard spot and into a divisional spot. And I think with the the fact that they they have these interdivisional games to play uh, coming up, I think that's what's going to put them into second. I don't think it's going to be quite enough to pole vault them into first place. Uh, I did a video for Heavy Hockey, as I did two years ago, and I did it again this year. was uh, It's called The Oilers' Path to the Playoffs. And I, I think there was like 38 games left in the season when I did it. And I kind of picked picked a few relevant games and how they were going to do in the division, which they're doing very well against divisional opponents uh, so far in terms of those games. I think they're 5-0 in divisional games since I did that video, and they have a lot coming up. Um, and so I allowed them to go in terms of, in I did divisional games and then there was like three or four in the schedule that I picked out as kind of important games. And they went, they've played all four of those games. If you watch the video and they, uh, they went three out of four against the, in those games and they're currently five and zero against their division. So in, in non-divisional games and non ones that I mentioned, I think their record could be eight, ten, and two in the in the remaining games. And currently, they're on a tear. Like they they have, I think they're well on the way to that. I think they're like seven, five, and five because the in games where I thought they might lose, they've been able to squeak out an OT point here or there. Um, so it's been it's been really good. They've been trending higher than I predicted they would trend to make the playoffs. And yet they still, I don't think, because of the way the Pacific teams are playing, I still don't think they're going to be able to make that that jump completely to the top. I think the other teams are just playing too well right now. But I, uh, there is something to be said for being the hottest team going into the playoffs. Even if their streak isn't quite enough to, to put them to the top of their division, I think it will put them... I think the way they've played is enough to make them the favorite coming out of that division.
0: Oh, yeah. And I was hoping that the Oilers would get their first divisional banner in uh, over three decades this year. But, you know, they they had a bit of a a slow start. And it's been great that they fought back in the second half. I, I tweeted the other day that the Oilers are tied for the most standings points in the league since January 11th. And that was the game after they lost to L.A. Uh, if you remember, they they were embarrassed on the road. They, the Oilers scored late to make it a little closer, it finished, I think, six to four. But uh, they allowed four power play goals that night. L.A. just controlled the play all all game. And just from there, the Oilers got their season back on the rails. And it was actually Jack Campbell and Nett, to give him a little bit of credit, who was uh, sort of leading that charge and goal while Skinner flew back to Edmonton for the birth of his first child. And... Okay. Uh, from there, the Oilers just went on a run. They won six straight games. They they had 11 straight games with at least a point, 17 straight games where they only had one regulation loss. And that allowed them to climb up from being this in the second wildcard spot to being a top three team in the Pacific. And now, like I said, they're just four points behind LA, six points behind Vegas. If they take care of those four games against those teams, then they really do have a chance still to win the division. But it's going to be tough because Vegas has still you know, got their games ahead of them too. And, and even if the Oilers win those two, they they would have to have a better finish to the season than Vegas would. But I think that they're going to play L.A. in the first round. Uh, and that's a team that's been a, a thorn in, in their side this, uh, this season. They've lost both games to L.A. after beating them in the first round of the playoffs last year. Uh, and as for Vegas, uh, the first of those two meetings is actually just about 10 minutes away here as we get close to puck drop on hockey night in Canada. So by the time this podcast po- is posted, we'll, uh, we'll know who won that game, but, uh, I'll get a prediction from you, Josh. Uh, how do the Oilers do against Vegas tonight?
1: I, I don't know. It's one of those ones. I had them when, the, when I made that video with 38 games left, they had three games left against Vegas and two against the Kings. And I predicted they would go Two and one against against the Vegas Golden Knights in their final three games against them. They won the first one, so they they do have a loss to give against Vegas according to my point standings here. Um, So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was tonight. I I don't know. It's 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 just one of those ones where there's just such an expectation. For this game uh, that I feel like, you know, it's, it would be super exciting if they, if they got the game against them. And I think I've got my hopes up too high. So that usually means that they're going to lose the game. And I feel like that'll be partly my fault if that happens. So I kind of want to just say that they're going to lose just so I can have my heart set on that. And then if they happen to win, I'll feel better about it.
0: Well, I'm hoping that they keep their streak going and they they win their third straight uh, against Vegas. The, the last time they played was on my birthday back on January 14th, and the Oilers won in Vegas. So I'm that that it was a good birthday present. And I'm hoping that I can uh, get another win tonight uh, from the Oilers. And I just want to say thanks again for joining me on the podcast tonight. It's always great to talk to you, Josh. Before we call it a night, where can people find you?
1: Uh, I'm on Twitter at Tough Pod. I'm on TikTok now, of all things, <laughs> at Tough Call Pod as well. And I'm on Instagram at Tough Call. And, of course, most important thing you can do to help me out is to subscribe to my YouTube channel, which also happens to be called Tough Call. So I'm pretty easy to find. If you just Google Tough Call, I'm sure you'll find me in all those places. But if uh, if you want to do one thing for me, go to YouTube, find Tough Call, and subscribe to that page.
0: All right, so everybody go give Josh a follow. Let's get him up to 2,500 followers by the next time he's on the show. Josh, once again, thanks again. And I'll look forward to doing this again, perhaps even in the playoffs. Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll be up for it. I love this show, and I appreciate all that you do. Thanks, man. Have a good one. All right, you too. All right, so for Josh Bolton, I'm Eric Friesen. This has been the 99 Forever Podcast. We're out.